sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Well, I think the difference you see between the approaches in the Trump administration and the Obama administration is here that these deals that, that the Trump administration is working on with China are backed up with, with strong enforcement provisions. That is a critical objective of the Trump administration, something the Obama administration me, me. didn't achieve. Mexico took the president's tariff threat very seriously, and they're starting to take enforcement at their southern border seriously. This is important to both countries. The president of Mexico, I get along with him very well, and we made this deal. But this is very, this is something the U.S. has been trying to get for over 20 years with Mexico. They've never been able to do it. As soon as I put tariffs on the table, it was, it was done. It took two days. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey there, welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. So glad to be with you today. Uh, I want to go back to the phones. We still have callers from last hour. Uh, we are also going to be chatting, just as a programming note, with Dr. David Barbie. He is with um, the American Medical Association immediate past president. He's a family physician from Mountain Grove, Missouri. We're going to be chatting about the opioid crisis. So, uh, he'll be with us next segment, but right now I want to go back to the phones. So glad we have callers and that they're sticking around for us. Um, David in Ohio, thank you for calling the show today. Hi, Stacey. Um, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I wanted to, to say there's a lot of options students have out there. Uh, I was extremely shocked when my three kids graduated from college. They had a lot of friends who um, their parents allowed them to take out as much of a loan as they could possibly get every year, and they they didn't work at all while they were in school, and um, they went to a lot of activities and parties and things like that. But they graduated with almost a hundred thousand dollars in debt, which is ridiculous for a bachelor's degree. And um, there's a lot of options that students have. They can go to a community college for their first two years, mm-hmm. and that will cost them about one third as much. And if they look, uh, there are community colleges out there that have agreements with, like, state universities mm-hmm. who, if they get their associate's degree, they can go to a state university to finish their bachelor's degree for half price. Um, the goal should be to as borrow to borrow as little as possible, to work part-time if they possibly can, and um, then if they... Uh, look where they work. There's a lot of places out there. Say every hospital practically in the United States will pay up to $3,500 a year for someone working full-time, or they'll pay 1500 a year for someone working part-time uh, towards their education. There's jobs out there that you can get assistance for your education, which is a tremendous opportunity. And then the other thing, when they do graduate, they should make an effort to pay back as much as they possibly can. If they will pay 20 to 40 to $50 extra per month on their payment, it goes straight to their principal, and, and their loan will paid off, be paid off significantly sooner by just paying $40, $50 a month extra, or even 20 if that's all they can pay. But there's a lot of options out there, and, and I think that as parents, we need to sit down and help our students Look at these options. Another great thing is um, when my kids started in eighth grade, I had them start taking their ACT. Statistically, 
Uh, every time a student takes an ACT test, their score increases two to three points per time. Those two to three points make a large amount in scholarships that you're available for. Oh, yes, they for. do. Yeah. So there are ACT book, study books out there, study, and then, you know, once they get in eighth grade, then you start making them take their tests and prepare them, and they'll get even more scholarships just as they improve their grades. So many great tips. And so I just want to stress, because David in Ohio, is he's basically giving you the primer right there. You should save this part of the show and play it back for your kids, play it back for your spouse, or play it, pay, play it back for someone in your life who's maybe going through this process right now with their kids. I can't stress it enough. One of the things that happens with us is we just get ingrained in our mind that student loans are the way to go. And or will think they're a necessary evil. You don't have to borrow any money at all. If you decide you're going to go to the community college first, like he said, for the first two years, you literally have cut the cost by three quarters. The other thing is going to a state university. The majority of the people that we know here who do very well for themselves are graduates of one of the University of Missouri schools here in the state of Missouri. I, I mean, these are people who are professionals at the tip top of where they work. And I don't know anybody who's graduated from one of those universities. And obviously this is anecdotal, but I don't know anybody who's, who isn't doing well. And by well, I mean working middle, upper, upper class, owning their own home, owning their own vehicles and kids, you know, going to a, a good school district, whether it's public or private or, or parochial Christian, whatever. The reason why this is so important for us to discuss is because we have to push back on this lie that the only th- you you have to go to, you know, you have to go to Princeton, you have to go. Those are fantastic. And I, I'm always impressed when I see people talking about my kid got into Princeton or my kids at, you know, I'm I'm impressed by that. It is impressive. But again, are, are they there on scholarships? Because that means they're getting that pristine education, a lot of liberal indoctrination. But if you if you know how to navigate that, you know, God's blessings be upon you. The point is that these kids don't have to go to Princeton to graduate, to meet their, their future spouse, graduate, and have a, a not just decent, but an outstanding opportunity at the American dream. Not everyone is going to go to one of those elite universities or even the Big Ten state schools. And it also depends largely upon what your child's temperament is. Now, I can't stress enough, the ACT is very difficult. It's, it's like... It's created to weed out and to determine how much of a statistical chance you have of graduating from college. So it's difficult. The tip that he just gave is probably worth its weight in gold, platinum, you know, um, latinum if you're a Star Trek fan. (laughs) That is a valuable tip he just gave. Take the test over and over and over again. Because every time you take it, you become more comfortable with it. And every time you take it, you learn something different about the test, meaning you have a new strategy you can employ when you take it. And more than anything, more than anything else I can say about it, it's worth the cost. There's a lot of free tutoring out there that you can get your hands on, um, a lot of websites where you can go and take practice ACT tests, and they give you the score that's, the score is created in the same way as the real ACT test. So you can take some of that stigma off of it and make it easier on your kids. And making sure that your kids are taking enough science and math to be able to do well on the test. And that's, that's it. Um, avoiding student loans. I know I said that before, but it has to be stressed because you're being told, even by like the last, one of the callers said last hour, they're texting you saying, oh, we can help you with the student loans. Um, 
take your student loans. We get now that we have two college students, we have literally notices coming every week. Borrow money through us. We can refinance your private loans. We can get money out of your house so you can, you know, use it to pay for your kid's education. It's a horrible idea. If your kid needs help paying for their education, you shouldn't be refinancing your home to do that. Now, for parents who are making the kind of money where taking out a student loan for their child is is a good option, hey, these are personal choices. But I would just be really, really sure that my kid was taking a course of study that warranted me taking out a student loan and that I knew that my child was serious enough about graduating and getting a career in that field that it would make it worth it. Let's go back to the phones. We have Keith in Michigan. Hey, Keith, thanks for calling the show today. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I'm going to say the uh, give the warning about student loans. Now, when I was going to college in my 20s, this started off, I got an ROTC scholarship. So I graduated in my time in the Army, and, you know, it, it was free. Hey, I got free money just to spend some time in the Army and, and whatnot. Then I went back to get a certificate, in a, a technical certificate, and I had to take a student loan out. I'm still paying for that. Over 10 years later, I'm still paying for it, and I expect that I'm probably going to have to pay for another five more years. And so the warning is don't take any student loans out. It is an albatross that will hang around you forever, or it feels like forever. And there's no way to get rid of it, even if you decide, oh, I'm just going to file bankruptcy and mm-hmm. I've got so much debt. Uh, it will stick with you forever. You can you can discharge all of it except you pay it off. That's right. You can discharge all of your debts except student loan debts because it's to the federal government, and they figure as long as you're alive, you can keep paying on it. That's how they feel about it. Yeah, you, the point you're making is well taken, and I just want to stress again: when we're saying don't take out the student loan, it doesn't mean you can't go to college. It doesn't mean you can't get it done. We have this idea that there's only one way to go to college, and that is to get into a big-name university that costs 60 or 70 or 90 grand a year and to go there with some scholarship money and borrow the rest. That is not tenable anymore. These student loan interest rates and the compounding interest and the fees, it means you're going out into the world afterwards, and if you're not making 100 grand a year, you're living at home with your parents. You also can't afford to marry anybody because your student loan payments are like a house payment. So you can never afford to move in with anybody, especially if they have student loans too. It's such a sad situation. And the avoidance technique that should be employed is, well, I guess I'll just go to school part-time and work part-time my first year or two. And then once I have enough credits under my belt, I can transfer to a traditional university and coming in as a transfer student. I'm not a traditional undergrad. That means I don't have to live on campus. I don't have to have a meal plan and I can be still in college getting my degree, but I don't have to borrow any money. And that should be the main, the main goal is not borrowing any money. Um, such a good call. Thank you so much for calling the show and for being with us today. Um, I want to hit that topic about um, the president and his negotiations with Mexico. Um, so, Mexico has actually okayed more than tenfold increase in their commitment of troops to the southern border. And this is important for us to understand because there's a lot of misinformation out there. It's number four. 
All of it is new. I mean, we, we've heard commitments before from Mexico to do more on their southern border. The last time they deployed down there, it's about four or 500 officers. This is more than a tenfold commitment to increase their security in Chiapas. That, that's where people are entering from Guatemala in southern Mexico. This is the first time we've heard anything like this kind of number of law enforcement being deployed in Mexico to address migration, not just at their southern border, but also on the transportation routes to the northern border and in coordinated patrols in key areas along our southwest border. People can disagree with the tactics. Mexico came to the table with real proposals. We have an agreement that if they implement, will be effective. So, it can can we just can we just talk for a second here? Is it is it so? Is it just normal to say because some of the things that they agreed to were suggested before, or that they promised to do them before but hadn't come through, that it's not a, it's not a deal? So since we're talking, right, since we're having this conversation, I'm going to just go ahead and let you know that it is my, I suspect that when President Trump said he was going to put a 5% tariff on Mexico and raise it up to 25% by October, that some Republicans in the Senate got together and they said, let's crush it. Let's punish him. He, he doesn't have the right to do this. This isn't what we put him there for. We want to show him that he's not unilaterally in charge. He still needs to conference with us and get with us and make sure we're okay with things. Let's let him know that if he does this, we will come back on him and we'll stop him. And so they did. And so then in addition to fighting Mexico and the Democrats, the president had to think through, now I got Republicans saying they're going to come up against me on this thing. And then Mitch McConnell wanted to make sure that he knew the shot over the bow was real. So he said out in public, we don't have any support in the conference for tariffs. That was an open threat to the president. Instead of him crumbling and buckling under the pressure, he continued to talk about putting the tariff on. And Mexico, who they may or may not have known that the Republicans were out with their knives, ready to plunge him into President Trump's back. The Mexicans sent people here to negotiate. And they said, look, We've been promising this. We've been promising that. We said we would do this. We said we would do that. And in order to stop him from putting that tariff on and taking 900,000 jobs out of this country, now we're actually going to do these things. And President Trump's representative said, oh, you'll do them now? And they said, yeah. And if you don't, we'll put the tariff on. If we have to fight the Republicans, we will. But you're going to do what you said you were going to do. That's, that's the deal. That's what I think happened since we're talking. Um, do I like it? I hate it. I hate a turncoat. I hate somebody who's on your side till the minute your back is turned. I hate that kind of duplicity. And I think people like that have trouble sleeping at night. That's why they drink so much. That's why they look like that when they're in front of the camera. But President Trump handled it. We'll be back. I've been leading tours to Israel for over 25 years. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. I started going to Israel with my dad in the 80s and uh, learned how to lead tour groups. And so been doing it ever since. And now my wife has joined me, Allison, and we love taking folks who support AFA and listen to AFR to Israel. And we'd love to have you come along with us as well. That's in March of 2020. We're letting you know ahead of time because we know that people need as much advance notice as possible to get ready for a trip like this. So if you want to go with us to the Holy Land, 
in March, go ahead and get the information at twholyland.com. That's twholyland.com. All the information on the March trip to Israel is posted there and hope you can join us. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. More than a dozen states have joined the national effort to circumvent the Electoral College. It looked like Nevada was going to be the next state to join the nationwide effort, but the governor of the state used some common sense and decided to veto the bill. He argued that the current effort would diminish the role of smaller states like Nevada in national electoral contests and force Nevada's electors to side with whoever wins the national popular vote rather than the candidate Nevadans choose. He should be applauded for seeing the problem with the national popular vote initiative. The plan is for states to pledge that they will instruct their presidential electors to vote for the candidate who wins the popular vote, even if the voters in that state voted for another candidate. The initiative doesn't go into effect until enough states reach 270 electoral votes. Nevada was supposed to be another state added to that list and get the initiative even closer to the requisite number of electoral votes. The governor explained that where Nevada's interests would diverge from the interests of large states, I will always stand up for Nevada. He is no doubt aware that in the last presidential campaign, the Trump campaign and the Clinton campaign held at least 17 major events in Nevada. Under a popular vote initiative, Nevada would merely become a flyover state. Perhaps some of the other states, like Maine and Oregon, that are considering joining the national popular vote initiative should pay attention to the reasoning of the Nevada governor. Their influence as small states would certainly diminish if they play a part in attempting to demolish the Electoral College. Candidates would spend more time in big cities and avoid public appearances in small states. The current system forces presidential candidates to pay attention to those states. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey there, welcome back to the program. I'm Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. The opioid epidemic is something that has just been, we've covered it here on the show. It is destroying the lives of many, many, many American families. It's utterly dastardly that we even have to deal with this. But that's what makes our next uh, guest so important. Dr. David Barbie, he's an AMA immediate past president family physician from Mountain Grove, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Barbie, for coming on today. Thank you, Stacey. Really appreciate it and appreciate your interest in this topic. So can you tell us an update on how things are going? I know the president made a deal with China to criminalize the uh, exportation of fentanyl to our shores, and he's, he's gotten some leeway with just having the conversation. He's had a number of initiatives come out of the White House but how are things on the ground for physicians like yourself helping people through this? Sure. Well, you know, the opioid epidemic in this country is a multifaceted problem, and uh, it encompasses both prescription opioids as well as the illicit opioids, like you mentioned, fentanyl, heroin. Um, and those two uh, last illicit drugs are responsible for uh, a significant number of the deaths uh, that occur sort of outside of the doctor's direct uh, uh, influence. And so the 
solution is going to be as multifaceted as the problem is, and we're hitting it from all sides, um, and we are beginning to see some results. So how does it work for physicians like yourself where you have to kind of decide, first of all, you, you have to decide if someone's in a lot of pain, whether or not you would even prescribe them an opioid right now, as which is a huge change from before where opioids were seen as just another way to manage pain. You're certainly correct. And a, a lot of this has improved because more and more physicians are taking uh, opioid prescribing education. Uh, we are, are more discerning now. We are more careful with prescribing, both in terms of uh, quantity as well as length of time prescribing. Um, if you look at the opioid prescribing trends over the last five or six years, down over 20%, prescribing 20% fewer opioids now than we did five years ago. And very honestly, that has um, been followed by a decline in the prescription opioid-related deaths, a very direct correlation between the amount prescribed and the number of deaths from prescription opioids. Um, there are multiple other parts of this problem that we'll, we'll also get to, uh, such as uh, identifying patients who are uh, maybe doctor shopping or getting uh, medications from other sources by, through the use of prescription drug monitoring programs in states, uh, the increased use of naloxone, the increased use of medication-assisted treatment, all very important parts to addressing this epidemic. So you just named off a bunch of different things that, that doctors are doing on the ground. And do you really feel like that's where the fight is in, in, um, but in between patients and doctors and making sure that there's less access and when, it, and there, when there is access, it's appropriate? That is one part of the equation. Um, and it is very much the responsibility of the physician working with his or her patient to determine if opioids are necessary at all or if other treatment modalities would be better, um, and to transition patients off of opioids at the earliest possible time. But it's also the opportunity that the physician has to identify patients who are having trouble coming off their opioids or who uh, clearly present with, uh, to the emergency room, let's say, or even to a primary care physician's office uh, with signs or symptoms of substance use disorder, and then to get them referred to appropriate treatment. Uh, it's, uh, in many areas of this country, uh, appropriate treatment for substance use disorder has been difficult to access, either because there weren't many resources available or because the ones that were available were not covered by insurance or even Medicaid in some cases. Um, I'm pleased to say that many states, including Missouri, are loosening up uh, their payment policies with regard to medication-assisted treatment, and that makes it easier for me as a practicing physician to get my patients the treatment that they really need. So are you seeing success after treatment? Because I think one of the most painful parts of the opioid epidemic is how families have seen their loved ones be unable to actually get away from the addiction uh, to the opioids. Sure. You know, substance use disorder is a complex medical problem, and it requires multiple approaches to therapy. Um, it requires medication-assisted treatment in many cases, which is a substitution of a different 
opioid for the one that they are addicted to. That's the traditional use is methadone. Pretty much everyone has heard of that. There are newer agents, uh, buprenorphine and others that are very effective at helping curb the urge of someone who has a substance use disorder from going back to the street drugs or the prescription drugs that they were previously using. But in many cases, it also takes other mental health resources and support uh, to help the person remain uh, drug-free and to get their life back in order. It's pretty amazing because I've I've seen heard some stories here locally of families. So you know how it is. You you know a family who knows a family who knows this family who they you know it's an intact nuclear family and they're middle class, upper middle class, and they raise their kids up. And one of their kids gets hooked on an opioid and then goes away for treatment over and over and over again and then finally returns home after multiple trips away and back and, you know, kind of falling back into it and then finally overdoses. And it's the story that kind of ripples out, you know, uh, uh, in communities of families like that where you're like, how could this have happened to a family like that, to a kid like that, with a future like that? But this is something that's impacting every different socioeconomic and demographic in this country. You are exactly correct. Uh, this is no respecter of of age or race or social status. Uh, this can affect anyone. Uh, it is the reason that it is so important that to the extent we can avoid people becoming uh, addicted to prescription opioids, that's very important. Uh, but there are obviously other uh, avenues. Not everyone who becomes a, who develops a substance use disorder started on prescription medications, uh, but to the extent that we can reduce the number that do, that is certainly uh, an important piece of this. But we mustn't forget, and you mentioned the issue of relapse, this is a chronic disease. It isn't a one-and-done treatment for many people, unfortunately. Um, it's like, in some ways, uh, other chronic conditions, let's say diabetes. You don't treat a diabetic for a month and then they are no longer diabetic. It requires ongoing treatment, ongoing support, um, occasional times when the person will lose control of their chronic condition, and it happens all too often in substance use disorder or uh, alcoholism. Um, we're People are human, you know, for better or for worse. It's, a, it's part of our condition, and uh, while we muster our resolve and we rely on our support systems and we rely on the health care system, there are times when we relapse. And at that point, it's, it's up to all of us, the medical community as well as families, to help pick that person back up and get them back um, on the right path again. Mm. Well, I'm so glad that the American Medical Association is really kind of taking the lead on this and that doctors and physicians on the ground are taking steps to alter just the interaction with patients and the availability of these drugs by prescription I know you mentioned that not all uh, opioid addictions are coming through, you know, legal prescriptions from physicians. Some of it is through the illicit drug trade and uh, marijuana and heroin and other things that are laced with fentanyl. And, and so there's there are other ways people can get addicted. But to have the AMA working in this way to to fix what can be fixed at that level, I think is going to be really helpful down the road. Hopefully we'll see less addiction and fewer incidences of people getting hooked in the first place. Yeah. I very much encourage your listeners to consider uh, keeping naloxone on hand. If there's anyone in your family or friends that uh, 
are using narcotics, opioids in particular, uh, you might be in a position to save a life. I also encourage your listeners to dispose of any unused opioids. Uh, If you get a prescription for 30 tablets after surgery and you use five, dispose of the other 25 properly. Uh, They're just waiting to be misused or abused or stolen, diverted in some way. So there are things that individuals can do, your listeners can do, uh, to help us fight this epidemic. Those are such great suggestions. And I, I just reiterate that if the pills, if you're done and you're, you know, you've had your wisdom teeth out and now you're done and you're past the pain zone, destroy the pills, get rid of them. Don't have them on hand. Don't, don't think, oh, you know, I probably should keep these because what if I have pain later? If you have pain later, over-the-counter medication is going to handle it just fine for headaches or anything else. Um, these, these opioids, you have to not have them available so that even if it's just someone who's at your house visiting your child, they might look in your medicine cabinet and see those and take them and use them for ill. So just get rid of them. And uh, what did you call the drug, the rescue drug that you mentioned? What's it called again? Right, the rescue drug is called naloxone, N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E, naloxone. Many states uh, have passed laws that allow uh, individuals to get naloxone without a prescription. Uh, Missouri, for instance, is one of those states. Uh, so if there's a family member that uh, is taking opioids, even properly prescribed opioids, uh, and you're concerned that there might be a mistake in the way they're taking them or that they might even inadvertently overdose, um, you can have naloxone on hand. Uh, it's all, In other states, it is available by prescription, uh, but it is widely available, and we encourage uh, it to be on hand. Uh, We were talking to the U.S. uh, Surgeon General this morning, literally this morning, and he was asking how many of us on the MA board carried naloxone, and only a couple of us raised our hands, and he asked how many know CPR, and everybody raised their hand. He goes, you know that the chance of someone overdosing in the hotel lobby today is greater than the chance of somebody going down with a heart attack, and yet all of you know CPR, but very few of you have naloxone on hand, so... That, I think that really drove it home for us, and I hope uh, that story drives it home for some of your listeners. Mm, that is such a perfect example. Um, thank you so much. And, and so if you're just tuning into the show, I'm chatting with Dr. David Barbie, AMA Immediate Past President, Family Physician from Mountain Grove, Missouri. Thank you for joining us today, sir. I really appreciate your expertise and your willingness to spend some time with us. Thank you, Stacey. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. Have a great day. Um, we, we, I, I really appreciate it when, you know, as a practicing physician, he has patience and he has a lot to do. And to take time out to come on the radio to talk about this is really, really, it's, it's wonderful of him to do it. And it's so important for us because he just, that point he made about knowing CPR, if you've ever been trained in CPR, you think, okay, that's something I probably will never have to use, but, you know, good to have it. But the Meloxone it hadn't even occurred to me to get to have any nearby as a, like just as a regular person, um, not a doctor, don't play one on TV. But what he's saying is you could have a person overdose near you. It's much more likely for that to happen than it is for you to have someone have a heart attack or, you know, go down needing some CPR. So think about it. He said the drug is Meloxone. It's M-A-L-O-X-O-N-E, Meloxone. Um, you have to check what your state's laws and regulations are on getting it without a prescription. Um, you could keep it on hand like we keep EpiPens on hand for kids who have allergies. Um, it's depressing that that's where we are with so many people using these drugs and possibly overdosing. 
But the reality is, if we can save someone, it's good to be prepared to do so. Um, it was really great to chat with him. So I want to just, we have a couple minutes left here. I'm going to kind of catch up on the show sheet. Um, you may have heard that former Vice President Joe Biden, who's a presidential candidate, has actually walked back his support of the Hyde Amendment. I'm so surprised by this because this is such a mainstream issue, not having the federal government fund abortion. And so here is Matthew Continetti. He's the the editor-in-chief of the award-winning Washington Free Beacon. And he says the Hyde Amendment is actually a Biden test. It's number three. This is a Biden test because even though Democrats, of course, oppose the Hyde Amendment and taxpayer funding of abortion, the public at large actually supports Hyde Amendment. They oppose taxpayer funding for abortion. This is revealed in polls by Marist on the abortion issue every year, including this one. So here's Biden's conflict between appealing to the Democratic base, which has moved left on this question and others, and a general election candidacy where support for the Hyde Amendment would not harm him. So here's my take on it. When you can't resist sniffing women's hair and massaging their shoulders and touching other people's kids, their children, their daughters, and you apologize for it, you have your wife apologize for it, and then you do it the same week, and it becomes clear and patently evident that you're never going to stop doing it, you open yourself up to the kinds of attacks that Joe Biden received last week. Melissa, Alyssa Milano approached him and explained to him, I'm using a little quote fingers and quote voice, explain to Joe Biden why you have to support, you know, you have to oppose the Hyde Amendment. And the reason you have to oppose it is because poor women need the federal government to pay for their abortions. Now, never mind that Alyssa Milano is unaware that the nation state of Russia actually had abortion on demand paid for by the government and it decimated their population. And yes, I mean decimated. It reduced their population to the degree that a nation that used to be on par with us population wise They now have less than half of our population. Their population stands at around 150 million. We're at 325, give or take the 40 40 million or so illegal aliens we've got here. And yes, I can support that number. Uh, That was a story that was out. I think I posted it to my Facebook page about how the, uh, the number of people who filed paperwork with the federal government for tax returns, tax refunds, that their employer identification number or tax ID number didn't match their identity was 49 million. Now who files paperwork under false pretense with the federal government for tax refunds? Well, fraudsters and illegal aliens, 49 million of those bad boys. So this idea that Joe Biden can't support the Hyde amendment and he's being bullied by Alyssa Milano, who doesn't know anything about the history of abortion in other countries well, it's par for the course, right? We'll be back. Stay there. Like, I wanted to have the abortion because I was trying to hide a situation. When a young mom in crisis walks into a preborn pregnancy center, she's welcomed with open arms and given love, support, and a free ultrasound to meet her unborn baby. This young woman not only chose life for her baby, but heard the message of Jesus Christ and was comforted from the guilt and pain that plagued her. Preborn centers lead the nation in providing free ultrasounds. When an abortion-minded woman sees her baby on ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. 
For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and 100% of your sponsorship goes towards saving babies. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. This is Kay Arthur. Are you hungry for love, unconditional love? Because unconditional is what you need. You've blown it, made a mess of life, and deep inside you wonder if anyone could love you the way you are. God does. And that's why God let His only Son, Jesus Christ, die on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for you because God knew you would fail to measure up. That's how much God loves you. The Bible, God's book, says while you were a sinner, a person who failed and missed God's standard, Jesus died for you. But that's not all. God raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus lives forever, you can too. If you want unconditional love, dear one, and a new start on life, call 888-NEED-HIM. Let me repeat that. If you would like to speak to someone right now about beginning a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, call 888-NEED-HIM. The Dean's List with Janice Dean. A 96-year-old World War II veteran makes today's Dean's List. Moments before the U.S. women's national soccer team played Mexico in its final exhibition match before the start of the Women's World Cup, Pete Dupre delivered one of the best renditions of the Star-Spangled Banner. When the announcers introduced him, a cheer went up from the near-sellout crowd and players from both teams applauded. A smiling Pete quickly acknowledged the warm reception with a wave of his hat. And then he began to play. The stadium was silent except for the sound of harmonica Pete. And then afterwards, the sounds of cheers followed. Thank you, Pete, for your service and your music. Janice Dean, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I have uh, I've supported the Hyde Amendment like many, many others have because there was sufficient monies and circumstances where women were able to exercise that right. Women of color, poor women, women are not able to have access. And it was, it was not under attack as it was then, as it is now. But circumstances have changed. I've been working through the final details of my health care plan, like others in this race, and I've been struggling with the problems that Hyde now presents. It's become clear to me that to get universal coverage and to provide for the full range of health services women need, which I plan to do with the continued expansion to Medicaid and the public option of a, of a, Medicare, of a Medicare plan, I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to, con- to exercise their constitutionally protected right. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. It's not dependent on someone's zip code. It's dependent upon knees being pressed together. You don't have to be pregnant. That's first off. And second of all, so taxpayers, American taxpayers are on the hook for every Jenny's abortion. 
every single woman out there who thinks I'm not going to take the care and proper attitude about making sure that I don't get pregnant. And then all the rest of us are like, oh, well, we'll pay for you to have an abortion. Don't worry about it. Because you're poverty stricken or you're poor or you can't afford to pay for an abortion yourself. Imagine. So, you know, we now have taxpayer funded. And, and isn't that the, the part of this that just really stinks? Like we can't gloss over this and miss the fact that we've been told for almost what, 44 years now, 45 years that the reason why we want to fund Planned Parenthood is because they do all of these other services. But now that we've learned that all they really do is abortion, they're ripping the mask off and they're saying, we need, we need to fund abortion. We need to fund abortion. We don't just need to fund Planned Parenthood. We're attacking Planned Parenthood for the wrong that they do to women. And the Democrats' response is, is not Planned Parenthood, fix yourself up, get your act together. It's, hey, yo, you know, don't worry about it. We'll just get you government funding from Medicare permanently abortions and all right as poor women they don't need um more education or more job training or skills or better schools in their neighborhoods they need more abortions and remember the poor women are mostly say it with me now black hispanic yes there are poor white women as well but the abortion rate for poor white women is not anywhere near as astronomical as it is for black women and Hispanic women, but mostly black women. You see what I'm saying? I know it gets offensive and people like to get all up in their feelings, but you know, I'm not here for your feelings. Uh, This is who I am and I'm not here for your feelings. Okay. There's two, there's two slogans for the price of one. So you have that going on with uh, Joe Biden saying he can no longer support the Hyde Amendment, which brings me to this poll data for uh, Iowans. Now, this was fascinating. Um, so the Des Moines Register is reporting that they have Iowa voters planning to caucus and they have certain thoughts about what are the most important attributes for these candidates. So they say having D.C. experience is, in their opinion, the most important thing. This is, these are the categories that they had on this survey. They broke the data down into this. Um, it's like a chart with the colors are blue is an advantage. Orange makes no difference. And red is a disadvantage. So on the question of having years of experience in Washington, so born politician, experienced politician, 52% of Iowans felt that was an advantage. said having years of experience in Washington, D.C. made no difference. And 7% said it was a disadvantage. Now, these are Democratic caucus participants. I I should have said that first. Let me reiterate. These are Democratic caucus participants, not Republicans, not most likely voters from every political persuasion, Democratic caucus participants. And these were their responses. Coming from a place that mostly votes for Democrats. So in other words, does this candidate hail from California or New York or, you know, Illinois, someplace where it's mostly Democrats? 28% said that coming from a place that mostly votes for Democrats was an advantage. 56% said it made no difference. 12% said it would be a disadvantage. Being white. This is a question they asked the Democratic. (laughs) Can you imagine the Republicans having a poll that said, 
would it be more advantageous for the next GOP nominee to be white? Can you imagine what the Democrats would do with that? Like, that's a whole show right there. We could just sit up here and make up stuff that they would do and laugh and giggle about it. And we'd have to break out cookies and like drinks, you know, like, um, you know, milkshakes and stuff and just sit in here and laugh and giggle and lose our minds over all the stuff they would do and all the stuff they would say and how breathless Don Lemon would get on CNN over the racism of the Republicans if we had a question like this on a poll for the Republican caucus goers. Can you imagine? Being white, 25% of Democrats said that being white was an advantage. 65% of Democratic caucus voters said being white made no difference. And 4% of the Democratic caucus goers in Iowa said it's a disadvantage if you're white. Being a woman, 23% said that was an advantage. 54% said being a woman made no difference. 19% said being a woman was a disadvantage. Being gay, 4% said being a homosexual was an advantage. 62% said being a homosexual was made no difference at all. And 28% of Democratic caucus voters said, caucus goers said that it's a disadvantage to be a homosexual and in the caucus process. And here's where it gets funny. Being over 70. So... 1% said being over 70 was an advantage. 50% said being over 70 made no difference. And 46% said being over 70 was a disadvantage. So they are for some very strong opinions about being over the age of 70 and running for this race. They want someone younger. So they actually had some poll participants that they interviewed for the story one of whom was Doug Fitzgerald. He's 66 years old of Rockwell City, and he said he supported Sanders in 2016, but he wants to see a younger Democratic challenger take on Trump this time. He says, here's a quote from this man. He's 66 years old and he's white. He says, honestly, since Trump took office, I've just kind of hated all old white men, and that includes Bernie and Joe Biden and any of the other old white candidates, he said. Fitzgerald, who is retired, recognizes he's also an old white man, but he said he usually doesn't hate people he's never met. But since Trump took office, I've been willing to make exceptions. Trump derangement syndrome, Exhibit A. Fitzgerald said he's leaning towards supporting California Senator Kamala Harris, who is 54, or New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who's 50. Notice he never mentions what they stand for or the differences between them on the issues. He's voting, he's considering voting for Cory Booker or Kamala Harris because they're permanently tanned, not because they have good ideas or because they can do anything. So the data sets come from the Iowa poll sample of 600 Iowa registered voters, including two groups of people, 433 of whom plan to attend the Iowa Democratic caucuses in person and 167 who plan to attend the new virtual caucuses organized by the Iowa Democratic Party. The poll's margin of error is plus or, one, plus or minus 4.7% for the in-person group or 7.6 percentage points for the virtual caucus group. The poll was conducted June 2nd through 5th by Selzer and Company. Wow. So they want somebody with Washington experience who's not white and not old. Also, they don't care if he's gay. Yay. That's what's so important, right? That's what's so important. Um, 
I just, I, I can't believe that's it. I, so just sit with me here for a second. Can you imagine sitting around with a bunch of your friends? Maybe you're, maybe you're in a book club, maybe you're in a men's group, maybe you're, you know, maybe it's a mom's group, but it's a group of people who you feel comfortable talking politics with, meaning you're all on the same side. Can you imagine being in a Republican group and having someone say, you know, I just don't think we need anybody who's old and someone else going, yeah, I agree. Nobody old and definitely nobody white. And then someone else going, yeah, somebody that's younger, somebody that's not white. And also we don't need any men or let's put it a different way. Can you imagine sitting around with a bunch of Republicans and someone saying, you know, what we can't have this time somebody black. You know what else we can't have? We can't have anybody who is on the younger side or on the older side. They need to be in the middle. Like I've never, in all of the times I've been in Republican groups, I've never heard anybody say anything like that. Not about blacks, not about whites or Hispanics. I've heard people say, like when Herman Cain was running, they said they loved the way he talked, that they loved his financial experience because he was a businessman. And they loved the way he just would just beat the liberals over the head by going nine, nine, nine. I remember when it was Dr. Ben Carson, everybody talked about how brilliant he was and how he was a neurosurgeon and anybody with that kind of brain and intellect would probably run circles around everyone in Washington. I remember them talking about Ted Cruz and saying that he knew the Constitution inside and out. It's like he was there when the founders wrote it, that he was boring and, you know, not so exciting, which he's since tempered all that because remember, he beat Jimmy Kimmel at basketball like a boss. And he's done a whole bunch of other stuff that has shown us. Actually, Ted Cruz is pretty cool. But can you imagine? I mean, I've, I've, every person I can think of that has run in the past two elections, I've been in rooms with Republicans. Sometimes it's all of us, are, we're women and we're in the room. Sometimes it's a mixed group with husbands and wives. And, you know, sometimes the teenagers are there too. And the discussions turn to politics. And I've never heard anybody say, white or black, Hispanic, whatever, that they didn't want somebody because of their ethnic background or they wanted somebody because of their ethnic background never but democrats are so used to this conversation they actually put it in their poll questions i i'm just i double dog dare anybody i'm thinking of scott rasmussen right now actually rasmussen reports uh they do some amazing survey work and data deep dive data research i would dare anybody to have a poll amongst the republicans and ask them do you want somebody old or young? And do you mind if that person is white? And see how the liberals lose their mind. They're so used to doing whatever they want. They can't even imagine everybody here having the same rights that they have. You, you do realize this is the double standard means that Democrats are actually allowed to be honest about their feelings about people being old and white. And even if Republicans have feelings about that, which I've never seen any evidence of that, they don't get to say anything about it because Republicans are all racist. So obviously they want white people. Never mind that we had Ben Carson. Okay. <clears throat> okay. I'm I'm not I'm not gonna let these people get me down today. Not today. Okay, so in addition to that, um McNuchin. So McNuchin was on talking about President. Trump being perfectly happy to hit China with new tariffs and describing the difference between the reaction to President Trump applying tariffs to China as opposed to President Trump threatening to apply tariffs to Mexico. He makes a good point here. It's number five. 
Well, I really hope the Chinese don't get the wrong signals from this. First of all, I might take issue with the fact that it's simply a paper deal. But more importantly, I think the president has shown time and again that if China isn't willing to commit to real structural reforms, that's not a deal that's good enough for him. And I also think there's, there's some differences here, uh, both politically and economically, that I think are worth exploring. The politics of this, there's a difference politically here. With China, the president has really strong support from Congress, from the business community, for the strategy to, to take them on and to get real change. But with Mexico, you heard a different reaction this week from businesses who were concerned about what was going to happen and from, and from senators who were, who were speaking out against it. And I think it also comes down to the economics. If you look at China, a lot of what we're getting from them are end products, uh, consumer products and things like that. With respect to Mexico, it's part of a very integrated North American supply yeah, chain. Things are going back and forth six and seven times sometimes in the auto industry. And so that 5% tariff can really compound upon itself. And that's why I think you're going to see a totally different um, uh, approach to Mexico and to China. And I just hope China doesn't read the wrong signals here. So the message there is China better not even think they're going to get away with the same kind of chicanery we've seen from the Mexicans. The Mexicans enjoy proximity to this country and they are serial abusers of our kindness. Their people are citizens here. They've got a significant number of their people living here and cranking out babies. And they're interwoven with us. Did you see the whole backlash about the avocados? Which, by the way, avocados are tasty, but don't lose your mind. National security is far more important. Basically, the message there is that China had better not get it twisted. China has not ever been, nor will they ever be, Mexico. We don't even want Mexico to be Mexico, to be honest with you. (laughs) All right. That's the show for today. Guess what? Tomorrow on Stacy on the Right, we will be chatting with Blair Ellis, RNC press secretary. She's going to bring us the straight what's up about this Mexico trade deal or lack of tariffs, if you will, the border deal. God bless you from the heartland. Thanks for making your home at American Family Radio. I'm Stacy Washington. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.